Hello, I'm Phil Hubbard. Hi, and I'm Anthony Gosling, and welcome to the 4AM Coaches Club podcast. So today we've got something a little bit different, a little bit special. We've got our first guest on the 4AM Coaches Club podcast, uh, somebody that I've worked with a lot over the last few years, and somebody I really admire on his experiences, his knowledge, and also his opinions as well. So I'd like to introduce Ross O'Kane. Hi, guys. How are we doing? So perfect. So to start off with, Ross, how's, how's things going with you? Obviously, we've caught up briefly every now and then, but how's things with you in general? Yeah, no, uh, quiet at the moment, uh, which, is, which is quite a nice timing of all events that have happened have, have been uh, pretty favourable with the World Cup and Christmas coming up. So, yeah, no, I'm, uh, I'm uh, stable <laughs> at the moment. Oh, good. I'm glad to hear it. And the reason why I've asked you, Ross, to come on is because of your experiences and your journey to where you've been and, and what you've done and what you've then, as a result of that, been to produce. So for those of the listeners that haven't met yourself before or haven't seen your work, would you be okay to explain to us sort of what your journey has been throughout football? Yeah, not a problem. Um, so, yeah, firstly, I suppose I, I left school and done my level one when I was, I suppose, 18. 19 and then never came back to it until I was probably 25 26 and in the meantime went into other areas of um interest uh and then done my level two when I was yeah 25 26 um and I was quite fortunate that I fell into a job at Luton Town sort of uh, originally just doing their eight so I was coaching three or four nights in the week uh and um yeah from there went Went on, went full time. UEFA B, UEFA A, advanced, uh, advanced youth awards, uh, and that's sort of in quick mode. The 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 journey till now, and obviously I was I was at one club at Luton for sort of twelve years, so I've seen quite a few things in that time. So, what would you say, Ross, were sort of some of the big the big turning points or? crucial points for you in your journey that had led up to maybe before you got became full-time at Luton what did you find were oh I'm attention and post becoming full-time at Luton what were the big key critical points in your journey that you found that potentially confirmed what you were what you were doing what you enjoyed or potentially challenged and potentially might have taken you elsewhere yeah no I think um I think doing my if I'm honest when I was doing my level two and my B licence, uh, when you've got to fill in the journals and your, your coaching sort of, you know, booklet, um, I, you know, you're supposed to go out and do the sessions, feedback. I, I'd done none of that. I, I literally, I penciled in the sessions that I thought were good uh, and I never delivered them. Uh, and then when it all got marked and signed off, you know, it was all good and brilliant and fantastic. I thought, I thought wow, I must know something. Um, and during that time, I was, you know, teetering between part-time, full-time. But I suppose the, the biggest part was when I was part-time, I, I got myself self, I got myself so involved in like full-time life. I was round everything. So I made sure that I knew everything. So when the time came when there was a full-time job, there was only one candidate. So I was, I put in a lot of hours for little money. Uh, I worked hard and I made sure that I was, you know, edging towards one option. And that was me going full-time when that position came. Um, and I suppose the changes only come from... Um, you know, staff that you're you're sort of surrounded with, uh, in my opinion. Uh, there's been a few development changes in that period of time, um, and I'm sure we'll discuss them later on. No, absolutely, and that's great. And I think, obviously, some of them things are really important. And obviously, you speak about the hours that you put in and, and the amount of money, and sometimes financially, it's not the most stabling way from there. How did you find you... Obviously, that, that could have a big impact on you outside of your career and, and, and coaching. Sort of. How did you find that balance or, I say, maybe lack of balance between what you were putting in and what you were getting out of it, potentially outside of there? How did you find that and how did you cope with that? Yeah, so I suppose I, I came out of full-time work 
when I was working in restaurants uh, and uh, kitchens and this and the other. You know, so I went from sort of 25 grand a year down to five grand part-time at Luton. And um, look, that was only possible because I had someone, you know, my missus was supporting me because uh, she had just qualified as a teacher. So it was, in that sense, that, that massively helped me. And that was a massive part of me probably going on this journey, if, I, if I'm honest. If I didn't have that support financially and, you know, someone there saying, come on, you've got to do it, you've got to change things. Um, and then I, I suppose it might have been different. Um, so she, she pushed me towards sorting myself out, something that I really wanted to do. But I suppose she gave me the kick up the um, the bum to do things. Um, so financially, yeah, it was a problem. But even when I went full time, full time money was like 15 grand a year. Like it's, it, it's nothing. But I suppose timing of events for me worked quite nicely. You know, it was me and the missus. There was no kids at the time. Uh, and I was able to really sort of focus on football and career. Uh, and then when kids started coming, I've got two boys, one's nine and one's seven, but early on, you know, uh, Luton, when I went full-time, were really good. They they allowed me to manage my own hours as long as I was getting things done, and that carried on in the same light up until I left, really. I was, I was able to manage what I'd done what it looked like, what my week looked like, and I worked it around family. So the balance of work to life was was fine. And I, I, you know, I haven't really had a problem with that. But then, you know, and the time I've had off since I've left Luton in September, um, when you reflect back, you, you, you know, you give a lot to a job. And it's not, it's not, I call it a job. I don't think it's a job. I think it's a, it's a, it's a lifestyle that you choose. And I've got to be honest, I think it's a younger man's lifestyle because once you start having children and family, it becomes very difficult to balance that out. Yeah, of course. I think obviously having worked yourself and, and seen the way you work and been on that journey with you for some of it, it is taxing. It's, it is taxing on you mentally and physically and, and sort of everything else. It, it becomes very difficult. So on that, I, I understand and appreciate. And I think that's that's something where we've probably got to be better as, as coaches and as people to try and find a balance of that. However, obviously, as you said, sort of people usually find that stage in their lives where I love this, I love what I'm doing, but this just isn't substantial and sustainable for me. So I think it's it's important to try and find an, a way through and hopefully find those opportunities. Yeah, I think, I think you know, your, your personal personality, it, it, it takes... Um takes his title. Like for me personally, you know, I was relentless in wanting to be the best. So I made it my goal to find the best players, make sure they sign for Luton, not going to surrounding clubs, making sure we competed. And we done that. And, you know, there wasn't really a year where we couldn't compete or we didn't have a really good player. And that was the goal. You know, you know your limitations. But I think the surrounding, uh, what is put on, especially Category 3, I think category one, there's more staff and more money, so it's, it's it's a little bit easier. But you know, you're dealing with putting the kit together, handing the kit out, recruiting players, putting the programs of work together, the tour program, the 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 games program, the actual coaching. You know, so when is it that you're actually thinking about the individual? You know, that that probably is last on the list, which in actual fact it should be first. Um, but that's that's where funding in the academies is, and I think that you know the funding should be used wisely. And I don't really think it is, and I still think a lot of the money goes top end, when actually it should be flipped on its head, and more money should be invested in the bottom end. So, Ross, I hope you don't mind me asking. Uh, you said something really interesting before. Um, when we when we think about coaches and all of our different journeys and stuff like that. What would you say now to a coach who maybe has a different journey? Uh, they live on their own or they have a different, um, a different pathway. So obviously it's quite hard work. Mm. What would yeah. you say would be your, your top tip 
of getting the priorities right for your position? I, I, I think um, if, you know, again, if, if you're a single man and you've got your own place and, and, and whatnot, and there's no family, uh, I say no family, no children especially, um, firstly, if you meet if you meet a woman, you've got to be honest and upfront and tell her exactly what <laughs> it is you want. Because, and I think as men, we're not great at that. Um, I, I think that is imperative. You know, from day dot, my missus knew exactly what I wanted to do, and she didn't stand in my way. She was very supportive, and she'd rein me in when things were getting too much. When you know, seventy, eighty, ninety hours a week, fifteen tours a year, it takes its toll. But when you've got children, you've got your responsibles, you know, for, for someone else and you have to change your attention. But while you've got the chance, you have to put yourself in a position that you're seeing, watching, knowing as much as possible. And you're watching better coaches and you're watching coaches with experience. People are getting jobs now that have got no experience. Now, you need the experience. And what clubs are not very good at is those that haven't got the experience, they're not good at putting people with experience around them. And that negates the, the problem with where he's got no experience. Um, and I, I think that is imperative for anyone's development. Uh, and I've seen over the years, Luton, they, they give jobs out and um, people you know, aren't ready for them jobs and there's no support for them. So what's going to happen? They're going to fail. Uh, so I would make sure that you are at as much as possible where possible, watching, saying very little, listening, because your time will come when you've got a lot to say. Trust me, I've been there. Uh, and, um, you know, you've just got to be very clever with how you um, you word things to the right people. Listen to your speech, uh, Ross, and I hope you don't mind me saying it's actually quite refreshing that I would love a mentor like you. And, and this week, Anthony's mentioned your name more than... But most, um, and uh, in a good way, <laughs> just to clarify, in a good way. Good. Um, and I, I just think of a quote I heard uh, a few weeks ago of, in a, in the fog, if you can't see anything, just just take a step at a time, and and that sounds kind of just like what you've done. You've just taken things in your stride, and it's it's really nice to hear. I, I think yeah. No, look, there's been the one thing I'm I'm definitely. When things go bad or or are hard, I will stand and front it. And what I try to do is take responsibility for every decision, every outcome, every player recruited, and I'll shoulder everything. Now, sometimes, and but with that, you know, you've got to be absolutely squeaky clean that you know exactly what you're going to do. And I think what a lot of young coaches or, or new coaches, they'll tinker with their thought process around development and you know and they'll have well i'm going to try this this is my beliefs this is my philosophy let's say and then it will change month on month year on year because they're uh, exposed to a lot of different people talking i was quite clear very early on without any experience what i wanted to do how i like things to look and i would not really come come away from them thoughts uh i, I was pretty headstrong with that but I'll be the first to say you know I I never felt or you know even now feel that I was the best person for coaches uh, to be around because I, I just wanted them to get on with being the best they could be you know I, I had maybe that was time but I, I had to put the best program of work together and hope that the coaches at the time could deliver that so on on that, Ross, obviously you've spoken a lot, and as you've touched on that, at times we've we've got to be quiet, we've got to be listening and seeing what's going on, because at some point we will be able to be in that position where we've we've got all this knowledge and experience and content. And I guess has there been many or few in particular people who have been very influential on your coaching, your career, your your development? Is there anyone? Is there been one or two or loads or? I, I don't look. I think, and it's not a, it's not a, uh, a, a problem in the way I see things. But I don't think there was always someone there developing and educating uh, at Luton. I think a, a lot of good content and good um, 
knowledge and learning came from, again, watching some really good coaches very early on work uh, and listening to people that have played the game and then listening to, you know, there was always something you could take from someone. I think that's the key bit. You know, you could have the most inexperienced coach come in and watch a session and be able to critique it and there'll be bits of it that he's right. You know, and I, I think there's loads of little areas where people can look at and say, well, you know, this is wrong, that's wrong, you know, what about this? But in terms of people that, you know, I'm not sure that, again, watching good coaches helped, but it was just talking to people. You know, Anthony, you, you were there very early on when we used to sit in a room and we used to try to discuss session plans. Like, we tried to talk about players. We we were talking about a lot of things, probably ahead of a lot of other clubs. Um, but I think that, that we had a WhatsApp group and we used to throw loads of different content on the WhatsApp group just so we could try and self-learn. And we'd try things. Some things have worked, some things didn't work. But we weren't afraid to try and fail. Uh, and try Absolutely. And I think just on that, so what we'd find is that a lot of staff were arriving like an hour to an hour and a half before their sessions to get in the office to make sure they've got a seat around that table that we had in the middle of the office. And it was great in respect of we'd sit down, everyone had their session plans. We might not get through everybody's. It's like, right, I'm going to do this, this and this because of this and X, Y and Z. And then someone go, yeah, I like that. Like I might use that next week or something along them lines because we've got that topic next week or It'd be, yeah, that's like I like that, but maybe if you thought about doing this, and straight away that's that's coming from coaches all across pre academy foundation phase YDP that's including FP lead YDP lead head of coaching, like it was a it was a really good atmosphere and environment because people were getting there early to try and learn off each other, and then at one point what we did is that one coach, like every week one coach would stand up draw their session up on the big whiteboard and then as a whole group it's there they've almost got to present it and it kind of helped us as coaches really I think consolidate the information that we had yeah and I think also with that Andy what what worked really well was that people had to come out of their comfort zone a little bit to put that up on the board because you we can all critique even the best coaches um, but being able to do that around your peers is difficult but Doing it will help the coach uh, develop. No, hundred percent and absolutely. I think I think about the experience that we had in that room. We had people who had been in the club ten plus years, professional ex professionals, people that had worked with numerous numerous players who'd gone on to get signed. So, and then walking into that room myself, I ended up getting the job at Luton pre the official response that I had my B licence. So I'd literally come fresh out of university with an undergraduate degree, loads of coaching experience, but not academy coaching experience and a B licence. And suddenly I'm in a room with players with like 100, 200, 250 caps playing professionally. People have been A licence five plus years and loads of experience with different age groups. So creating an environment was really big. So for us as coaches, it was really supportive and kind of, what I want to to lead on to next, if that's okay, is sort of you spoke about and kind of highlighted where we might need to change and shift our focus from potentially the top to the bottom. So sort of, obviously, for those that don't know Ross's background, Ross has a big passion and, and desire to work with foundation phase players where it's found to be where he's best suited or where he feels best at home. So obviously on that, Ross, sort of, what is the importance of the foundation phase? Like, why to you is it so important, and why potentially that shift from top to bottom? Yeah, I think um, for me, you know, coming into it, you think you're going to work in the Premier League and be the best manager in the world. That's that. That's the entry point for most coaches that start. They think they're going to work and, and win the World Cup with their national team, and you know, you have the, all these grand ideas, and then you find yourself in a position where actually you know, I, I think I can be really good at this and be quite bespoke in this area. Uh, and I found that with the with the young ones, you know, uh, I, I found that the, the sponges, 
they hang on every word that you say. Um, you can you can demonstrate, and they can be in awe of of what you can do and what you know. But also, you're you're slightly disciplinarian in terms of something that maybe they don't get outside of football. You know, I'll call it very old school. That you know, it's it's my way, and we're doing it this way. And if you're not going to toe the line, then you're going to be out quicker than you're in. Um. So, yeah, I mean, it's um, yeah, interesting one. I think that one. No, absolutely. I think obviously we speak about it, and something that kind of got brought to my uh, something that sort of challenged my views, not my views as such, but kind of posed a question to me when recently on a course that um, like at your clubs and this was a course with people at other football clubs and it was along the lines of sort of is your more YDP supportive of your FP or is your YDP more supportive of your PDP and I think obviously the amount of work and information and that goes into FP players uh, are those ages from sort of 7 to 12 as you said, Ross, they're, they're sponges. And is that something where potentially when they get to sort of YDP, do we slow that process down or do we continue it at the same rate? Does it go slower, faster? Kind well, of, what's, what's your idea of how when they come in at A, so then when they leave, hopefully at 12 to go YDP? Well, my, my, my view on it is that the foundation phase, let's say, it should be 14s down. Uh, I don't think there should be a youth development bit. I, th- I think that foundation phase should be 14 down and then 15s up should be near enough for your, your professional development phase. Uh, you might have two years of the, the middle youth development bit. 14s down because I, I appreciate 15, 16s are still in school, but 14s are, you know, they're babies. You know, they're still developing. They're still, um, they've got loads, loads to learn. And I think if they've got the same sort of face or lead overseeing them, I think it's an easy transition. Now, people would argue that part of that transition, let's say through their years, should be more difficult. It can't be too easy. I would agree and disagree. I think they have to have con- consistent in terms of knowing who coaches are and staff are. And I think in that controlled environment, that's when you can start to really put some road bumps in the way for their development. Um, but I think clubs, and look, I'm, I'm speaking on my opinions uh, and my experience. I don't think many really care too much about the foundation phase. And I think I, I got, you know, look, I could, I could get up to and do whatever I wanted and sign whoever I wanted. No one really batted an eyelid now. Is that because I had experience or it was, you know, well, just get on with it because it doesn't matter really because there's no repercussions because we'll just keep signing players at 13, 14, 15 if what Ross doesn't sign isn't good enough. Well, in my opinion, if you look at the recent years at Luton, you know, over half of their scholars have been from the foundation phase. So for me, that's a massive, massive part of the club's development. Uh, Sorry, Ross. Um, I love what you said there. I've got just a couple of questions. Yeah. Do you think in a couple of clubs that the foundation phase starts too young? I've seen it start at some places at, at six, seven. Where, how do you manage it? Yeah, I think, um, look, we, when, I, when I started at Luton, we had under sixes. Mm-hmm. And this was, you know, well, I say when I started, we had eights groups. We didn't have sixes and sevens. And then two or three years in, we had under sixes and sevens that came out of schools. So we're in schools and anyone that could run or kick a ball came into that session. It was just a free, you know, fun football session, introduction to, you know, their football really. And it's, it's the one question that will live on because if academies don't do it, then there's always going to be someone that profits from it. Private academies will do it. Yeah, They're going to start somewhere. Um, I think that the problem people have got with it is that the over-professionalization too early of it. 
which I agree with. So should should five, six, sevens, even eights be given kits, which they've changed the rules to, to be fair, you know, but years ago you'd see an under sixes picture of a professional football club, you know, a team photo. Like they're yeah. not even signed. Like I don't I don't get that. Um however you know, I, I don't think we should say no. There's not a time you can come in. I mean, look, there was a big hoo-ha that Bayern Munich started their foundation phase at, what, 11, 12s? Well, yeah. if people look into it, it's a load of rubbish anyway because they've always done that. They just go around buying the best players at 11 and 12. So they've never <laughs> they've never cared below that, you know. But we'll, we'll look at it and go, oh, look at that. Let's copy what they've done. Well, no, because, you know, they're still they're buying players. Look past that. They're buying players from round Germany at 11 and 12 years old. You know, hello, like, yeah. what's worse? <laughs> it, it doesn't leave you with, with much to um, admire, does it? In, right. When teams do that, because it takes away that element of, I mean, I'm from Newcastle and, and listen, we, we love our football and I'm not saying no other place does, but just not as. I, I think there's more passion up here, but it's a religion it is yeah and like when when you see so like the, they've started doing um, the, uh, the foundation the Newcastle United Foundation started a little while ago to have their foundation development phase and it was just a black top with Newcastle United on that's all it was mm. um, but that made a world of difference to that kid and my second part of my question was um, where do you look at in terms of is it because kids are coming to you but getting a good level of coaching and when they get to that next phase whether it be YDP or PDP then they've always had good coaching some kids that maybe start too late haven't had that um, quality I suppose you could say yeah I mean Look, question. Yeah, yeah, no, I've seen grassroots coaches work, and it's no, I'm not, they they are brilliant because they're not getting paid. They're out there grafting for children that are in their care. However, you can't come away from, you know, my boys have been part of grassroots clubs, and it's, it's, you know, 11 in a line kicking a ball. It's, you know, one doing something and the other's watching. Now, no one's developing with that, you know, so, so the level of, uh, you know, coaching has to go up. And this is a bit for me with the FA. Uh, and I said, to, I talked to Anthony earlier about certain um, certificates and awards that people should get to work in certain areas. You know, for me, a child up until eight, nine, ten, they, they should be ball hungry on the ball, uh, all the time, sessions. And then in the game, coaching the game. The game's not going to change. It's, you know, it's X players v X players, two goals or a ball. It's not going to change. Coaching the game, you know, with some real life information. But their sessions in the week shouldn't be anything tactical. Like, why? why? I don't understand. Make them as good a football as possible, but link the part of or the, the session that you're putting together that it looks like the game. You know, and I think, but look, touching back on something as well, you know, that I thought was powerful, and I think, you know, people might want to know, you know, Man United, when we used to go up to Man United, uh, and we were the only under eight club that used to go to Man United, and now it's an influx. But, you know, 10 years ago, I remember going up there, we went out to play Man United, and, and they came out in like Nike Portugal shirts, Nike Holland shirts, Nike, you know, it was all Nike different nations. And I said to the coach, why is why are your boys not wearing Man United? And he said, no, they've got to earn that shirt. They've got to earn that shirt. We don't want anyone to wear that shirt until they're an under nine, they're signed, and they've earned that shirt. So no one here wears that until they're signed. And I thought that was, I mean, Man United can do it because it's Man United. But, I mean, powerful. Powerful, very. That's, you know, really brilliant for, I think. It keeps everyone on the same level. And the level changes when, you know, it becomes money, financial contracts at nines. But, yeah, that's one I'll throw in there. So, on, on that, Ross, obviously, 
you've touched on a little bit about sort of Cat 3 clubs and Cat 1 clubs. Obviously, for those who don't know, sort of where me and Ross are based geographically, there is a there's a large influx of Cat 1 clubs, a couple Cat 2 clubs, and then a couple, but quite a few Cat 3 clubs around as well. So, obviously, we you've got to find a way to compete with these other clubs for the best players where possible based upon where you are. So on, on that, what, what made think, what did you do to create a program that you found was the best fit for what you could deliver? What was the curriculum? Like what was the syllabus? Like what, what additional experiences did you try and provide in, in that package that came with being a Luton town player? What, what was it? Those extra things and that made it what it was. Uh, yeah, look, I think I think that was the that that's what I call my magic, my magic touch. I think you know, I didn't, I weren't coaching lots. Uh, it was all a lot of the admin side of what we put together. So um, tours was a massive part. I, look, I looked at the program that everyone done. I, you know, I was massive on looking, hearing, watching social media around what other clubs done. And it probably, you know, it took its toll because you're looking at everyone and what everyone else does uh, and you're trying to st- keep up to date. But I made sure that we done stuff that no one else done. So the under the under eights at the end, end of under eight season, we'd take them on tour. Uh, we'd try and get the nines, tens, elevens on three, four tours a year. We would have sort of bespoke training sessions we would have, we would be doing, we, we were fortunate, I say fortunate, it worked in our favour that we had a cages, we had the cage to work in, so it was tight areas, uh, you'd get smashed against the, the, the fence if you weren't putting your hand out and protecting yourself, and then we were at futsal once a week, and then we had one on the Astro, so in terms of variation, the boys were getting so much, but we made sure that everything we'd done was competition. You know, anyone that knows me, it's it's competition. I, I'm all for winning. And if I lose, I lose with dignity, I hope. Um, but yeah, it was it was a really different programme. Um, and, and, and in terms of players as well, we took players that weren't fancied anywhere else. And we, at times, not everyone, but there was one or two maybe in each group that we pigeonholed very early on. And we, we put them in one position and they played one position the whole time. I say the whole time. You know, there's obviously times when we made their development programmes different to challenge them, but we knew where they were going to end up long-term. So uh, just so on, just on that, Ross, then sort of, obviously you don't need to name anyone in particular, but could you potentially talk about how a player in a certain position might, what might that development plan look like? Would they always play centre-back? Sort of, what's... Can yeah, so I think, I think, yeah, I think when, when I talk about pigeonholing players, I think a lot of that was, um, yeah, a lot of that was uh, the, the time when we done that as centre half. Um, so when we played centre 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 back, so I'll name one: Pele McDermott, um, who is now at Tottenham. He um, he come in at six. He was really tall, gangly lad. Uh, all legs, played up front. I remember watching him and, you know, I was over, where was I? Over at Western Inn, watching this this lad and then his name got called out, Pele. And I'm like, Pele? Wow, okay. So he stuck in my head because his name was Pele. He scored two or three goals. Brilliant. And he came in and he, look, he was always on the floor because his coordination was all over the place. But when we signed, when we sort of signed him, we made it a decision. Well, I say, the first year of his development, we were going through the, you know, let the game be the teacher, let him play all over the place. And people were questioning him as a player. Think, you know, where's he going to play? Put some gloves on him. He's massive. Just put him in goal. Um, and then going into under 10s, we said, you know, I, I had the conversation with dad, honest conversation, look, longevity and where we think he's going to play. We're not going to waste time with him playing as a winger or as a uh, sort of outside midfielder. We're going to play him centre-half and that's where he's going to stay and he's going to learn the game. Um, and once we had agreed that, 
and that had been settled and, and into motion. Over the period of time, we play him centre midfield to quicken up his feet, depending on the games programme. So if we played someone in our games programme, we might play him centre midfield for half the game. Uh, but if we went and played cat one, cat two, he'd play centre half for, for the whole game. Uh, and we educated him on that. And that in itself definitely helped him. And eventually, as a 15-year-old, we sold him to Tottenham for, you know, 250 grand plus. Uh, and he's he's got a five-year pro at Tottenham. No, so, absolutely. And again, those those experiences that, yeah, it's almost like a, a pigeonhole is not always necessarily a pigeonhole as such as it is. Not fix it's is is something that like like everything in football and and coaching is is always on a continuum. It's always there for, up for reflection and review. So on that, well, uh, I think if you look, uh, you know, sorry to butt in. If you look at, um, you know, I watched him very late on, but Frankie Masunda, who was uh, at Luton, I think he's in Scotland. He plays for Zambia's national team. Uh, he was a pro at Luton for three years. I think he played two or three games. His whole journey at Luton was playing centre forward, and then he gets into the, you know, he gets into the uh, scholar scholar years, and he goes centre off. So you know, look, he's been pigeonholed, but then he wasn't quick enough, clever enough centre forward, so they moved him to centre off. Now look, they moved him centre off, but he wasn't. Big enough to play centre off, you know this 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 mad world. Even though Man United have spent sixty million pounds on someone under six foot to play centre off, you know this 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 size thing matters in England. No, absolutely, and something I want to touch back on to again, and this is a conversation that could go on forever and ever, and, and I'm glad it does. Obviously, we you touched on tours, you've touched on futsal, you're talking about the variety in in the games program and, and the training program for then sort of what, what would a normal week look like? Would there be futsal included? Was there futsal included? Was there not? Was there grass work? How often was players going on tour? Things like that sort of, obviously you, you've spoken about variety, but how often was the variety provided? So, yeah, no, I think, <clears throat> sorry, firstly, it worked, um, because of space as well, you know, we we were training under sevens to under twenty ones on one astro, but we had two cages, so we went in the cages out of the way, you know, foundation phase, you can get in there. Um, <clears throat> so, you know, in in a week, if you looked at the under nines, a week would be they'd be in the cages on a Monday, uh, indoors on a Thursday, futsal. I say futsal. We, that would change as well. We'd use a, a futsal size four. We'd use a futsal size two. We'd use a normal ball. You know that would that would change in terms of development. Um, and then on the Friday we would be outdoors on the grass. And then, you know, where possible, and maybe twice in a six-week cycle, we'd play back to back Saturday Sunday. Are massive for players playing as many games as possible. There's a, there's a term at the moment overuse. I mean, wow, overuse. Right, the kids don't do enough. You know, the, the the times when you're growing up, I always use the thing, and look, I know it's a different era, but you, you're telling me Paul Gasboyne won with a football every day, every hour, every minute of his life. Come on. You know, that helped him and aided him as a player. So why can't the why can't players in the academies do that more and more? So, Russell... I hope you don't mind us putting in, but um, I, I just had, literally had this conversation about two hours ago um, with uh, the, the female parents footballer. And by the way, it doesn't matter if they're male or female, but I just want to be specific. Um, and the the girl plays uh, Friday night in a, in a girls' league, Saturday in a boys' league, Sunday in a, and. So yes, there's a level where we have to go. We have to look at the child and go, okay, maybe there's a little bit of burnout at that moment. But for the most time, I think we neglect how how much they can do. Um, and it's really refreshing to hear from an academy coach that, yeah, let's let let's make them play all the time. And all the best footballers we've mentioned, two of the greats there, Pele used to run around the streets 
with not even a ball. <laughs> it was like a, yeah, like, like a thing in rubber well, bands. I, I, you know, there, there's a few few bits there. Yeah, look, I, I understand. You get to mid elevens, and this is all individual, and that's where you can be. You know, now you're talking about individuals and their programs. Yeah. When you get to elevens and twelves, there's growth related things that are going on. So if you do too much, then you've got a problem. So you've got to manage it, but. What are we seeing week in, week out now? If you're at the top level of the game, you're playing Saturday, Tuesday. Or near enough all season. Yeah. Now, our boys in academies are only playing one game a week at majority of clubs. Well, that's you're not getting them, that's not development because you're not getting them ready for the real game. Because the real game at the top is twice a week. And sometimes, you know, that th- you can play four games in eight days. We've seen it happen over Christmas periods. You know, look at the World Cup. Every four, every four days is a game that a team has to play. Now, this, that, that is the most elite level of football anywhere in the world. And we're asking players, every four days you're going to play a game. So, at 8, 9, 10, 11, why can't they play week? At, you know, the, the, the Premier League, EFL, FA, I don't know who it is, they made this rule up, whether it's been passed or not, I don't know. But, you know, where those foundation phase players can play grassroots alongside their academy football. This was the murmur. Before I left Luton, that was what was getting passed. Now, that would be brilliant for the players left in academy football. Uh, Sorry, brilliant for the players left in the grassroots football because they get to play against, you know, good players, which in turn brings up the level across the board uh, for me. Um, Don't get me wrong. If you're, you know, if you're putting an academy team in a grassroots league, pointless. So there's got to be some things that, that are put in place because of that. But players should have to play. I, 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 you know, we tried to do it. I had it in my head. 65, 70 games a season would be a good development year for a player. Uh, and playing, you know, 70, 75% of them minutes in them games. So obviously on that, Ross, what's that variety of that games programme looking like? Is that all cat three games was that a mixture of ones and twos? Was that grassroots games? Was that older games? What how did that look? Yeah, so if you know very early on, you know what teams are. look. The problem with category football is that if we go down to Tottenham and we play players, let, let, let's say we went to Tottenham and we didn't do this by the way, but I know there's lots of clubs that do. We went down with our under 10s, but we played 11s down in the 10s. Tottenham might play nines up. So the score then becomes a farce in terms of the bigger, stronger boys. But And then it's all put on social media, you know, that this 11s team has beaten this under nines cat onesie. That, that's, not, that's not realistic. That's not right. So, you know, there's got to be a dialogue between the clubs. And I think a lot of cat one clubs actually, you know, want to know what you're bringing down now because it's a ridiculous thing to see, you know, if, if if Tottenham lose 14-2 to a Luton team and it's put on social media, what are people going to think? When actually, if you look into the bones of it, someone's playing five players down and they're playing five days up, players up, it looks a farce. So I think more dialogue between clubs in terms of uh, knowing who's playing where, what, why and how. Clubs do that. Obviously, look, the, the Cat 3 clubs do that because they want to compete. Uh, and, they, and the Cat 1 clubs do that because they want to challenge their players. So it's, you know, and something gets broken down in the, uh, in the middle. But the actual programme that you'd put in place would be, you know, as many Cat 1 games as possible. You've got your Cat 3 games to, that you have to meet and they're there to, to play. You manipulate them. So we might have a 10s game at, you know, Man City on the Sunday well, we'll play more nines up in our Cat 3 games programme and we'll challenge our nines that way. Um, but you, but the thing is, you never know who you're playing. You um, never know what age and who age and who they are. You never know. So on that, Ross, obviously we've spoken about team development and, and different phases with sort of different stages, sorry, within that. How... How might you look at individual development plans? How how might you do a variety plan for particular individuals? And obviously, 
something that I really, really love about academy football football is that you can play players up and you can play players down. I think that's, again, I, I don't know how it would be managed or how it would work, potentially in grassroots, but for me, that's a concept that I really like. Because yeah, I think, I think we've seen it a lot in the foundation phase, particularly at Luton, where players aren't necessarily quite ready for their own age group because some of the players that they're coming up against potentially physically. Um, but no, kind of, if you can, Ross, just kind of touch on individual development plans and, and how that kind of works. Yeah, so again, you know, it's in, it's in the, um, the, the, the title, the individual. So it's whatever the individual needs uh, for, for me. And uh, the longer I stay in it, it won't change my, my thoughts that, you know, the social psychological side of a player is so important because the one thing that coaches can do is make players as footballers better. But I don't think you can always educate and help the social, psychological side of a footballer. And we've all seen it and we've been around players that are, you know, the the, the big characters. Them big characters, you know, that is... What a trait. Now, some of them can go overboard and some sometimes those players need to be put in with older age players just to keep them on a level, level-headed playing field, as it were. But I think it's all about creating the environment where, you know, whether you're up, down, left, right, you know, uh, it doesn't matter. Everything's done for the right reason. So, you know, you might have a player that might need to... Uh, well, I'll give you one. Luton has still got in there. The lad, um, he's number 14, Sammy Pinnington. <clears throat> He's the fastest kid I've seen. He is so quick, you know. And as a seven-year-old, again, no one was interested, but he could run. Like I remember watching him. I remember his grassroots coach telling me, "He's like, no, you don't want him. He don't do anything." And I saw him run. I thought, "Oh my god, what, what are you on about? He's the quickest kid I've ever seen." The game, you know, the game's getting quicker, and you've got someone there that can do it. Now, his program of work was he's left-footed player. You know, yes, you've got a tool. You can pass it past someone and run. And you can basically pass yourself. But the one thing he couldn't do was come inside on his right foot. And so when you're looking to put an, uh, a, a plan in place for him, you play him on the right side to force him inside just naturally on his left foot. So you go, look, you're doing it. You play him centrally to see, you know, and, and challenge him around how, how many times you can go left or right side uh, in a game. But he's getting to 14, 15 now, and he's just starting to do that. You know, so his program, it's taken him five years, six years to get to a stage where he's now actually starting to come inside and trust his right foot. And that's how sometimes, that's how long it takes. That's why, you know, learning programs, if you've got an ILP and that's changing every six, eight, 12 weeks, I think that is rubbish. Because as soon as they walk in the door, their deficiencies are the same as when they leave you. How how much does your player profile, I suppose you could say, I talk a lot about player profiles because they're, they're important, but with that, is it just about revisiting, staying patient? Because you have to. I mean, I think, I, I think we probably get rid of kids a little bit too easy. Yeah. Um, uh, like Premier sides up here, they get rid of kids too easy just because some kids came in. That doesn't show loyalty. So where does that, I mean, where does your plan come in from that? And you're probably one of the ones that have been very, very patient with that. Well, I think, look, they've got to give you something back. Yeah. First and foremost. You know, you can't, you just can't carry, I mean, uh, when when players in, when we talk about players with pace, like you, you got to have them in. You know, the earlier you can get them in and try and affect them, brilliant. I think, uh, and I've seen it. I've seen players come in at six and seven, uh, and 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 fail just because again, psychologically, it is a major task. And you know, keeping and this is not just this is all players. Keeping them engaged in a 10-year program. That's what you're talking about. You're talking about a 10-year development program. How are you keeping someone that young engaged in playing football? 
it's got to be different. You can't just ram football down their throat. You know, the, the program's got to be, yes, we love football and I want you to fall in love with the thing that I love the most. However, I'm going to educate you on other things along the way. You know, and you've got to take an interest in these, these, these people. And I think when you sign a player, if you're releasing them for the same, the same, you know, something that you've had an effect on, then you're failing them. Um, you know, and I think we should be more patient. You know, I've I've seen it where you know Luton release players, and they've come back to haunt them elsewhere. So on on that, Ross, obviously we've spoken a lot about the individual. We've spoken about development plans from there. Kind of, and again, having worked to yourself quite what well, very closely, what's can you kind of explain why we, we used a lot of mixed age group sessions and how that variety and how having mixed age groups in sessions and it wasn't obviously all the time, but what was the importance of exposing players to those kind of environments? The, uh, yeah, you know, touching back on the social psychological side. The, especially indoors, we've done it. We've done it indoors futsal a lot where we mixed the, the groups up and let them play. Um, you know, we'd have sessions that went on for four hours where we had nines, tens, elevens in. Um, you know, people with four hours training. No, you can't do that. It's too much. No, shut up. What are you on about? Like, they want to be there. Like, give them what they want. So, yeah, I mean, we mixed them up because socially it's good for the older ones to um, help the younger ones, for the younger ones to be quiet and listen and, and, and in turn learn and grow off their peers. And over the years, the younger one becomes the older one. And the older one is, you know, it's like, it's the playground mentality. You know, when you, when you grow up, well, years ago, when you're growing up on the playground, it was everyone, every year group from year two to year six playing football. And if you were year two, three, if you touched the ball, you were lucky because the year fives and six were keeping it and they weren't interested in you. Now, if you do something a bit magic, you get their attention, they respect you straight away and you're in the click. Now, you've got to try and create, or what I tried to create is an environment where everyone was looking out for each other Everyone challenged each other, but not just challenged them on a football side, on a on a personable side. I wanted the older ones to put their arms around the young ones. I wanted the young ones to look up to the older ones. I wanted people to feel like they had another, you know, brother, as it were, uh, within the academy. So there was thoughts behind it. We never had this down on paper, by the way. This was never written down. It was just... You sort you know what's needed, and I think that is a, a major part that we miss out on. That you know, the, the, these kids are growing up, not playing as much as they used to, and we need to allow them to stay around other other children of the same that have the same interests. So on that kind of the when you when you see that obviously you get them in and you want to keep them on this ten year journey. What what things do you look in players? What what does it take to be looked at in in the foundation phase? What does it take to be an academy player? What kind of key attributes? Obviously, you've spoken about speed. From there, what what kind of things do you want to see? Yeah, I think what what I would look for is someone working hard and running around first and foremost. Um, we've touched on personality and character. Uh, and someone that can, you know, that wants to learn. Uh, I'm not saying we, we, you know, you can have all that and not be able to play. You've got to be able to play. You've got to be able to, you've got to be at a certain level. But I think if you've got the right characteristics, because whatever you say, to play football at the highest level or at any level, you have got to be ultra disciplined in everything you do. Eating, drinking, drinking, sleeping, you know, following orders. And, and that's why players don't make it because they're not willing to sacrifice at the end. But again, I then add, to add on to that, what does it take to be an academy coach? So obviously, as you said, you've spoken about the experiences as such, but what about the psychosocial side of, of coaching? What, what do you need out of that from a coach? 
Um, very similar. Someone that's willing to be there uh, and invest in the, the the children. You know, put themselves. A lot of coaches and look, I understand why that they they're in it and they want to jump through the age groups as quick as possible because they think that you know the 18s 21s is the pinnacle of academy football and i think that's a society problem we we've made that that that's the pinnacle of the game and it shouldn't be you know we should have people that are proud to be bespoke foundation phase coaches and want to work at that age group because they see that as the you know so important for the child's development i guess on that it's very similar to being a teacher isn't it you for example, the traditional route is you go to university to get a degree, but you don't, you don't see often that it's just like a generic teaching degree. It's people specialise early in their the studying and education that, okay, I want to be a teacher. Oh, primary or secondary or, or, or sort of pre, pre-school. So then straight away is, again, stereotypically, traditionally students come out of university at 21, 22. So very very early on in their career they're looking to specialize and i guess that's potentially something we need to do more as coaches and i I guess that's potentially where the fa have come in with the youth modules obviously the youth modules have been there for a while and now things have changed over the last two three years with the reconstruction of the courses i guess the idea is to have more age-specific courses because i think for the for the b license you you need to be doing 9v9 11v11 um, but who says you can't do a, um, like a smaller format as such? So I guess that's somewhere. That's the kind of direction and potentially we might want to potentially look at that moving forward. I think, the, yeah, I, I, th- I think I, I feel like sometimes it's like, like you say, it's entry level, and I don't think it should be. I hundred percent disagree. Entry level, the best coaches work with the players that need the development. Now, their development is at the highest rate. Youngest age groups. Okay. The older they get, for me, it's more man management. You know, it's more man management. 18, 17s, 18s up. You know, they're, they're training, but are they, you know, are people actually working on their ILPs? And, and I'm, not, I'm not sure. How much, how much learning are they doing? Is it more tactical? Probably. But the development side of any player, I think, is at its highest early on in their journey. Ross, you make the. I'm trying to think how to word the question because you said a couple of things so far, and and it's all really simple, and I love it because I think as coaches we might have the temptation to go and talk about pdp and and um and development phases and player programs and, and making it all sound really like out there and um loads of bells and whistles on it it sounds like you've just come up with a method that's super simple easy to follow and all about the player i think you know if you think about what it is like to be a kid and what you want mm-hmm. And then you go, right, I've got my adult head on. And this is what they might, you know, this is what they might need because I know top end what it looks like. And then you simplify what, how you can bring the two together. Done. Uh, I don't think, you know, uh, again, young coaches sometimes want to do it. They want to reinvent the wheel. There's no wheel to reinvent. The game's been the same for years and years and years we want to put on sessions that we think look brilliant thousands of cones on the floor no make a box i'll put I, you know i'll make 100 sessions out that you know in that one 30 by 30 box and the kids will love it because all i'll do is make it a competition and i'll challenge players within it yeah I, I, I've, I've done some of these sessions before and i think when i was really young and I, it just as you were saying there, I was like, "Oh my god, I was that coach." I yeah, but we all, we all, so we all are. Out. No, we all are. We we we've all been there. Uh, you know, you're looking on the internet, looking for sessions, and oh, I'm going to do that session. It's not, it's not, it's not the right session for their age. You know, so make things relevant for them. How are you going to engage them? I think you know, 
Wayne Turner, who was one of the old academy managers when I very early on when I started, um, he said, competition, and when they come off, they've got to be sweating and they've got to be they've got to have learnt something. Them three things, that's it. He, you know, look, I've, I've worked with A license, pro license coaches uh, that couldn't do what a a level two coach could do with eight, nines, and tens. So that's where, for me, the the qualifications become irrelevant. I think it's the person, the person delivering, is key because I think they look. If you put, I could put my missus in a session. And she would be better than a lot of the academy coaches that I've come across because she knows how children tick. So, you know, you know, and if you get them engaged and on side, you're winning. So, you know, it's about personality. You've got to be, you know, Anthony will tell you, you know, there's coaches that can go too far with their personality, you know, and there's some coaches that need some personality, you know, but you've got... You've got to incite the kids. You know, and I, I go into I make sessions that I want to be in, even now, as, as you know, as a kid. I, I, you know, I want to be in that session. So I'm going to design that session. And then I'm going to think about player A, B, and C and how I can manipulate the session to get what they need out. No, absolutely. I think, as, as you've touched on, Ross, I think at times I've seen you being the biggest kid on the Astro. And sometimes being the most strongest adult head mind on the Astro as well. And I think, again, I think you've got to find a way that your personality adapts to the group, but then also to individuals. I think it's, it's finding ways that sometimes if you're this big, loud coach and that's your personality, not every single player in the group is going to adapt to that. So then potentially when you have to go in and coach that individual, it might need to be, you might need to tailor and tweak your personality to that. But at the same time, it's, it's still you as a person and you're still being authentic to yourself. However, you just might need to bring out different parts of that to then affect the individual. And I think that's, that's really important as well, is to find that actually, as long as you're being authentic and original to yourself, that your personality comes out, then it comes out in players as well. And taking that time to get to know players. And I think I look, I look back at the first age group that I worked with Ross and yourself and, yeah, I remember coming back to you and thinking there's some um, like there's some massive characters in that group with a lot of personality, and some of them some of them were striving, some were struggling compared to others, and then there's other players that were deemed to have minimal personality because they were very quiet, very shy, didn't say much. But as soon as you gave them football, they would rip up most most players one v one, and then one day it was. Uh, just again, one day, just asked him like, "Oh, did you watch any football over the weekend?" He's like, "Yeah." And I said, "Oh, who did you watch?" And he said, "Arsenal." I said, "Oh, like, do you support Arsenal?" And he went, "Yeah." I said, "So do I." And I tell you what, this kid's face lit up like a Christmas tree. Yeah. And suddenly, we then had a full-on conversation, like for two, three minutes, about Arsenal, about favourite players, about how we're getting on. And suddenly, like, I've seen all this emotion and. And feelings and see things going on in his mind and suddenly like it, it was unbelievable but again then obviously again if I've then started talking to one of the other players who might be a, not be an Arsenal fan but I can then talk about how at school oh, I did this this and this and he's like oh I've got a girlfriend and like you're 10 years old and it was like and all these confidence things and things like that and then just little things that become really personal with people what happens like, in, in life if you take an interest in someone they feel a million dollars. It's the same with kids, and even more so. If you take an interest in their lives, and you know something about, them, because you know they might not, they might have not talked to anyone all day. You know, so if you take an interest in someone, and there's nothing more powerful than a kid smiling back at you, knowing oh, that you've got his back. You know, so it's important. No, absolutely, and obviously, to kind of conclude, Ross and. Obviously, you've spoken about how you've taken some time out now to yourself with your family and, and focus on what's what's next for you. What what are you looking at? What is anything in particular in your mind, a role, a job, or sort of kind of see how things are? What's, what's next for you? Yeah, I think um, the, the time and the reflective time has given me, you know, food for thought. Uh, do, do I want to go back in full time somewhere? 
Um, maybe, if it's the right role. Do I want to coach? I don't know. It is, it, it is recruitment where I sit best, possibly. Um, so I'm, I'm keeping my options open. Um, and I'm not going to rush. I think uh, sometimes... You know, you can have nothing come along and then all of a sudden you can have the buses all arrive at once. So I'm hopefully, hopefully some of them buses are going to arrive in the new year. And, um, but there's no rush. I'm, 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 I'm happy and content that I'm with the family and spending some quality time at last with them. Oh, good. And as we said earlier, you're back in, you're cooking and uh, <laughs> you're bringing out those parts of your enjoy that you've had. Um, so no, I'm I'm really glad that. And kind of for me, Ross, to, to wrap up for me, obviously it's been a credit to work with you, and I really appreciate you coming on to the podcast and talking to us. Um, it's something that I know we've spoken about before, and something I've spoken about with Phil about trying to get you on. And I'm really grateful that you've taken the time to speak to us. You're both of you are more than welcome. Uh, it's been uh, it's been enjoyable talking about football, <laughs> as it always is. Um, you know, and I think uh, anytime, anytime, I'm 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 free at the moment. So <laughs> next one will be a cooking lesson, yeah. Listen, get me on Zoom. I can do anything. <laughs> uh, Ross, I hope you don't mind me saying, but it's, it's been it's been a really really nice chat. Um, but I am looking forward to a week of not hearing your your name. Um, uh, but honestly, it's such a it's been really nice to hear your thoughts on the foundation phase and, and what you would do and, and how simple it is from someone so successful. And and I define success as um, what someone sounds like when they've had a really interesting and they found a love for that career. And it sounds like you've done that. Yeah, I think I think look, the one thing that is definitely going to be the case is that anyone listening is not going to be bombarded with big words. I'm <laughs> what I think is like just a normal fella that sort of knows what he's doing. Uh, I, I remember being in a meeting once and Anthony starts talking about pedagogy. I'm, oh, like, I'm so he, glad what, you brought that up. What, I almost what did. What is he mate. going on about? I almost brought that up. That was. That is still I, one of the best moments I've seen you turn and look at me like with absolute disgust. I, I, <laughs> when he said pedagogy, and I thought, what is this? But you know, I then realised that I was doing that. I doing that all the time. You know, uh, that was part and parcel of what we delivered and what we done. But this big word came out. But look, you're not going to get big words of me. I, I just know the practices and, and how to implement them and and. There's one for you, Andy. Uh, an holistic point of view for the player. Unbelievable. Uh, I'm, I'm uh, proud. I feel like a proud dad. <laughs> oh, I, uh, Ross, we're doing. Uh, we're starting like a drinking game every time. Upstairs, uh, <laughs> holistic. You've got to have a drink. So, well, I'll say it there. a few more times. <laughs> but no, look again, Ross. Thank you very much for your time, and thank you to everyone who's been listening to the podcast. We really appreciate the feedback and the comments we've been getting back, and. Ross will be the first of many guests that we're able to bring onto the podcast. So from me, guys, thank you, Ross. Thank you for everyone for listening and have a great week. Thanks, guys. Thanks, Ross. Thanks.